in his brand new stage show, Secrets and Illusions. Set on the dark and deserted streets of Paris, you'll enter the legendary Louvre Museum, where an enchanting musical muse escorts you through the albums, while Ivan uncovers life's greatest mysteries deep inside the priceless works of art, one dazzling illusion at a time. This program is supported by you, the KGNU listener member, and by the 17th Annual Moab Folk Festival, with support from the Utah Office of Tourism and featuring folk legend Judy Collins. Three days of live folk and Americana music takes place November 1st through 3rd in the scenic Red Rock country of Moab, Utah. Tickets, lodging packages, complete lineup, and more available at moabfolkfestival.com. Tune in Thursday evening at 6 p.m. to hear author Ben Westhoff speak about his new book, Fentanyl Inc., how rogue chemists are creating the deadliest wave of the opioid epidemic. I think a lot of people think that, uh, you know, it's just some, a problem for drug users, you know, like junkies and people who are on the fringes of society, but it's really impacting everyone. As it is a special fun drive show, we'll have copies of Fentanyl Inc. to offer to listeners who contribute during the show. That's this Thursday at 6 p.m. here at KGNU. This is KGNU, Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins. Stay tuned for Metro. Welcome to Metro on KGNU. I'm Maeve Conran. Author Sergio Troncoso has been described as one of the most brilliant minds in Latinx literature. He is the author of several books, including The House of Broken Angels and The Humming... Or excuse me, that wasn't his book. He is the author of The Last Tortilla and Other Stories, as well as Crossing Borders, Personal Essays and the Novels, The Nature of Truth and From This Wicked Patch of Dust. His latest book is a collection of short stories called A Peculiar Kind of Immigrant's Son, and it tackles the themes that Sergio Troncoso has been writing about for many years. Stories of displacement, stories of racial identity and what it means to grow up in a Mexican-American household on the US side of the southern border. Sergio Troncoso will speak at the Tattered Cover in Denver on Saturday about his latest collection, A Peculiar Kind of Immigrant's Son. Well, it's it's a group of uh, short stories that are linked together, and they focus on immigration and uh, Mexican-American diaspora. And really what I mean is, is simply Mexican-Americans beyond the border in places like Connecticut or New York, uh, and how they're trying to either assimilate or they're being rejected um, by society, or they're struggling to find out what the border meant to them, even as, as they get older. And so that's kind of the focus of the book. And I, I grew up uh, in El Paso, actually in the outskirts of Isleta, in, uh, which is sort of a neighborhood on the east side, uh, without running water and, uh, and electricity. And as, uh, to paraphrase uh, Tina Fey as Sarah Palin, I could see Mexico from my house. And, um, and, so, and I, from that beginning, I went to Harvard, and then I went to Yale, and I teach at the Yale Writers Workshop. So a lot of it is trying to make sense of this huge leap that I made. And, and when I go back home, trying to make sense of what it all meant to me. Well, let's dig into that a little bit more because you grew up 
it sounds like within spitting distance of the US-Mexico border, you could see Mexico from your house. And now you're living much further away. What is the relationship to people who live so close to the US-Mexico border? It's such a physical thing, because I think this is so important to help us all understand what's happening right now. Well, I mean, my relationship is I, I go back often. And so I'm probably there six times a year. I do readings. I, I, I establish um, the reading prizes um, for kids in high school and grade school. So uh, I tend to continue to write about this place, although I don't live there anymore. And, and I think one of the most important things, especially because of what happened in El Paso, that massacre at the Walmart uh, where 22 people were killed, more people were killed during that one day than El Paso has in murders in an entire year. And so it's a very peaceful place. It's a place full of immigrants, Mexican immigrants, and they they work very hard and they, um, you know, are really the salt of the earth, and just like my parents were. And they they want to be American. And, and I think these mis- misperceptions of someone from the outside, like this person who drove from Dallas for something like seven or eight hours simply to shoot people in El Paso, you know, people do not, some people do not understand what the border is, that these people really, uh, like my parents, are in many ways uh, uh, very much akin to the pilgrims, people coming here wanting sanctuary, wanting to work um, in themselves to the bone, wanting to create a life and become American and Americanized. And and I think when you are not from the border, you don't see this. When you don't go back to the border and have a continuing relationship with the border, you miss all of this and you tend to rely on stereotypes of, of Mexican immigrants. And I think that's one of the things certainly that my book is trying to dispel and undermine these stereotypes of people who are not familiar with the families and the values of hard work and perseverance and, and the values of, of working until you drop. Uh, to move forward, you know, to move your life forward. Uh, and that's certainly what I experienced as a child uh, on the border. And my mother still lived in the same adobe house uh, that my parents built themselves um, decades ago. Well, you write about feelings of displacement due to race. And this is part of your short story collection, but this is really part of your own personal story, having grown up, as you said there, in uh, this border town, but then moving to, you know, going to an Ivy League college and now living kind of in the East Coast. You know, talk about what that's like, because we don't often explore that. When we talk about immigration or migration, we often Mm -hmm. talk about moving from one country to another, but we don't talk about what's happening internally and, and feelings of displacement when people move around within the U.S.? Well, yeah, that's a a very good question. Um, You know, what happened to me is as an 18-year-old, I had great uh, high school counselors and they said, uh, why don't you apply to Harvard and Stanford and and all these uh, great universities? And for me, they were abstractions. I had never been to Massachusetts. I'd never been to any of these schools. And and I was a, a poor kid from the border who loved to read and loved to write. And so that first move as an 18-year-old going from, from Isleta and the outskirts of El Paso to Harvard and, and, and then eventually to Yale as a graduate student, um, it was just a, a fundamental displacement in so many ways. I, I showed up at Harvard Yard uh, with bell-bottom jeans and Led Zeppelin T-shirts. I did not know... Um, Boston got cold, so I did not even have a coat. 
I had to buy a used coat uh, from a used clothing store. Um, I had no idea what the Ivy League was or even how to write a term paper, 25 pages, you know, with references and footnotes. And so everything from where you eat to uh, opening up your own bank account uh, to not having money to go back home. For example, my parents did not visit me at Harvard until I graduated, uh, you know, four years after I arrived. So I was very much alone uh, in in so many ways and simply trying to adjust. And so when I arrived at Harvard, I I sort of assumed everyone was bilingual. I can speak Spanish and English, um, you know, equally. And, of course, (laughs) that wasn't the case at Harvard. So in so many ways, I was simply adjusting, trying to make sense of what had just happened to me, trying to survive in the in the hothouse of the Ivy League, where suddenly I was thrust to reading three, four, five hundred pages a week, and I had to compete with the brightest students. and And I was a good writer, and I think that in many ways is is what saved me. And uh, when I got my first uh, A minus in expository writing. In, in in my freshman year, I felt I could do as well as the prep school kids, as the rich kids that were at Harvard, and there were plenty of them. Carolyn Kennedy, for example, was a senior uh, when I was a freshman. So that was that kind of milieu. And, and it was just adjusting one year, one semester at a time and trying not to quit. When I, I just, I'll give you this little story. The first week when I arrived and I felt very alone and I arrived with my battered suit suitcases, uh, to Harvard Square, and I told the taxi uh, driver driving me in from Logan, I said, you're taking me to a park. And he said, no, this is not a park. This is the school. It's all around you. I just didn't know that a school could be located in such beautiful uh, tree-like, verdant, you know, bucolic setting. And that first week, I called my grandmother. I was very close to my grandmother. Um, who was who grew up during the Mexican Revolution, and was a fighter, was a, a tough lady who who knew how to fight and and, and survive in in, a, in that kind of social situation. When I called her and I told her I want to quit, I want to go back home. What am I doing here? I don't belong here. I everyone says I, I speak with an accent. She said, Sergio, don't come back with your tail between your legs. You you show them who you are. And, and she was this powerful, you know, uh, important woman who really taught me about oral storytelling. And, and, you know, she did not have a formal education, but she knew how to fight. She knew how to tell a great story. And, and, and this is, these are the kinds of values and, and family life that I did not see portrayed in literature. So when I got uh, better at writing and, and, and I went to Yale and I started as a graduate student, I started writing stories to really tell the stories of the border, tell the stories of families who lived there like my family, like the people who are forgotten in literature and who are ignored and who are really the new pilgrims, in my mind, up to the United States, but are often uh, ignored. Well, if we look at what's happening right now politically in the US and the kind of hateful rhetoric that we're seeing coming from the very highest office, you know, in the country and that's permeating throughout all aspects of society, now that hate really has been there as you, I 
know, you know, for many people, it's a surprise to learn that people have been battling prejudice and bias for many years. Now it's, you know, out there in the open, I think, for more people to to maybe get a sense of. And, and I think so much of it, it's a lack of empathy and a lack of understanding other people's lives. And the fact that we can see political rhetoric that others people to make people seem like, well, they're not human or, you know, the language that's used, it sets people apart. I think a big part of literature has been able to create that sense of empathy. But we do need to read outside of our own personal experience. And and I think if you looked at certainly the literature that's put out in schools, you know, starting even in elementary school, they're not reflective of the diversity of the US. I mean, for somebody who's written about, you know, from your your perspective and and having gone to Harvard and and the kind of literature you were exposed to there, you know, talk about that gap and how do we close that gap so that people will read outside of their own experience and will encounter stories like the ones that you write about? Well, it, it, it is a constant fight. And, and you know, it, and it's getting better. You know, there is more being produced uh, by immigrants from the border, by new immigrants. And, and this, these kind of hateful rhetoric that we've seen certainly coming from the White House and many other places, you know, was done before to Irish immigrants when they were, you know, coming over in the 19th century after a famine, and they were done to Jewish immigrants. They were done to many different immigrants um, that, that, that came to this country. So it's not really anything new, and it's always trying to break that idea, those stereotypes, these misconceptions of what these new immigrants are. And and I think for me, the, the key of what of what you said is trying to get places like schools or let's say a white audience to pick up a book like a peculiar kind of immigrant son and read about these immigrants that you may have had an idea about because that's always a challenge we can write the books we can actually win prizes you know exceptional prizes uh one of the stories for example in a peculiar kind of immigrant son the last one eternal return was published by the Yale Review, which is an exceedingly difficult review to get into. It is the oldest literary review in the country, and I believe it is the only time Isleta and El Paso have ever been mentioned in the more than 100-year history of the Yale Review um, that it existed. So, but, but people have to read it. A white audience has to go and pick up this book and say, I want to learn about these people coming from the border, and I want to learn uh, about these complex characters, uh, the, you know, the difficult relationships, for example, I had with my father and, and, you know, how my mother was a reader as well, although she read in Spanish, and all of these things that try to understand and have more empathy for um, these people that I may not know. But it, it really depends on people making an effort, a, a white readership saying, I want to go outside of my box and I want, or, or the, the little cocoon that I've created about my society, and learn about other people. And that's always the biggest struggle, uh, because we can write the books, and we can even fight schools to get these books on the bookshelf. But also, ultimately, it, it also means that readerships that are not familiar with these communities have to make an effort to say, this guy who's a Mexican immigrant who... Um, you know, went from uh, poverty to where he is now, you know, teaching at the Yale Writers' Workshop, he might actually have something to say to me that helps me in my life, that helps me, um, even though I'm not Mexican, even though I'm not from the border, but it helps me to understand what it is to struggle, to um, overcome 
difficult obstacles, what it is to have a sense, a strong sense of self to keep fighting, you know, for what you want. And so all of these are universal themes that anyone really could could uh, appreciate uh, through reading literature, but you also you got to pick up that book. If it says, you know, Sergio Troncoso, and that's kind of a funny name, and you've never heard that name before, you know, will you judge it simply by the name, or will you judge it by literally just giving me a chance, read that first story, and seeing, oh, wow, this guy's talking about his, his difficult life with his father, and I had a difficult life with my father, or my father may have been Jewish or Irish or, you know, African-American, and I can actually learn from these stories as well. So it's a challenge to to open up that white readership, so to speak, to pick up these stories and, and, and read them as well. And of course, I mean, you're dealing with so many issues that are just universal to everyone. Love, marriage, ageing, all of those things. That There's a universality to that. And I think we tend to silo people and people's experiences. And, and that is part of this othering that we're, we're living through right now. Right. And, and it's a struggle to open that othering, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to not make judgments based on stereotypes that you hear on cable news TV to be more thoughtful. And I, and I think part of the issue is also we're not reading as much. You know, when you read, you have to engage. You have to think. You, it's not just uh, something like a TV show where it's simply all being done for you and you just absorb the images. You know, one of my graduate degrees at Yale is in philosophy. And, of course, Plato, way back when, you know, thousands of years ago, warned us about a society based on images, how it demeans and destroys thinking. And I think we're going through that right now, that, you know, too much social media, too much quick judgments, judgments based on flimsy little images coming from the TV. And then we act on those judgments. And sometimes we act on those judgments by, you know, going and killing people in El Paso or somewhere else. And instead of being a little bit more reflective and understanding that what we're about to act on is just a stereotype, just a false image, and we need to engage something more, much more critically um, to, to make a, a better choice. That's author Sergio Troncoso. His latest book is a collection of short stories, A Peculiar Kind of Immigrant's Son. And Sergio Troncoso will be speaking about that book this Saturday afternoon at two o'clock at the Tattered Cover in Denver. That's the Lodo branch. And if this type of thoughtful interviews, if they resonate with you, well, we would love to hear from you as we are in our fall fund drive. We seek to bring you authors. We seek to bring you people who can maybe challenge your world view. And maybe you've been inspired to read a book that you potentially wouldn't other pay, wouldn't otherwise pick up because of an interview that you've heard on KGNU. Maybe you read along with us in our monthly radio book club with the Boulder Bookstore and you've been inspired to pick up a book. We would love to hear from you and we have lots of great books available if you make a contribution on this snowy Thursday afternoon. You can come and browse and uh, select some of the books that we have featured on our airwaves over the past few weeks. It's as simple as making a phone call at 303-449-4885. That's 303-449-4885. Back now to Sergio Troncoso and his book, A Peculiar Kind of Immigrant Son.
Sergio, I'd like to go back to your experience of when you first went uh, to university and it was such a, a foreign experience for you in, in many ways. You didn't even have a coat because you didn't know Boston was going to be so cold in, in the winter. And right now, a lot of colleges and, and right here in, in Colorado, the University of Colorado and various different campuses, you know, they're trying to deal with issues around the fact that we are seeing less students of colour represented in the student body. And there are lots of discussions as to how do we change this? How do we make it more accessible from your own personal experiences what do colleges need to do to to make this a, a scenario and a situation first of all to normalize it so that students from all backgrounds feel welcome in college that it's not just something for the elites because there are so many more barriers that you have to overcome i mean you're you're dealing with i people who are coming from families where generations of people have gone to college or maybe even that particular college and, and they have a different way of navigating all of that. But, you know, what can colleges do to really make this as an, an accessible and equitable place? Well, especially for that, for that first uh, student who is about to go to college when no one in his or her family had ever been to college. And so you need to break that cultural, uh, financial barrier. I think a lot of it in what, what happened to me was, um, you know, getting parents and getting this culture in the community that maybe uh, has not sent many kids to, to college, getting them to, um, to people that would also understand in their language and in their uh, way of thinking what college means. For, for example, when, when, I, when I went to Harvard and I came back and Harvard sent me back to recruit to El Paso, I said, get more poor Mexican kids like you up here because, you, you know, you, that's what we want. That's what we're looking for. And so one of the things I would do is I would introduce my parents to other parents in my neighborhood and all across El Paso. I visited like 20 schools and they were Mexican parents who spoke Spanish perfectly. That was their first language. And they would talk to other parents in, uh, whose kid might be applying to Harvard or the Ivy League. And so they would get a sense and a trust from my parents that they wouldn't get from, let's say, a foreign uh, admissions officer or somebody who does not know the, the neighborhood. You know, and they, would, uh, and they would respond to them in Spanish and say, how do you apply for a student loan? What is it like for your kid to go so far away to school? Um, you know, my son, you know, my, my father would tell uh, other parents, he said, my son did not leave us. He's getting opportunities. Uh, he, he's going to come back. He's writing already about El Paso. So a lot of fear in, in parents is they're going to lose a kid if they go thousands of miles away or, or go to college. And so a lot of the, it's allaying these fears that parents may have, because once you have the parents supporting and the family in support of that child who, who has them, the, the intellectual capacity to do well, they just have never had the chance or they've never been told they could actually go you know, to college, then I think the chances of success are higher. I think the other thing that really helped me, and again, I had great teachers in El Paso and Isleta. I had uh, Pearl Crouch and uh, another teacher, Josefina Gutierrez-Kynard, who before I had actually been to the fancy neighborhoods of El Paso, they took me to San Francisco and they took me to New York to compete in writing competitions, uh, in high school writing competitions. So I had a sense of what would happen to me once I left. 
And it wasn't that brand new experience that I graduated from high school, never having left El Paso, and then suddenly I'm I'm dropped in uh, you know in, in Boston and trying to survive. So they they were almost training me to to think outside of El Paso, think beyond where you know where my my limited sights were at that time, and and to think about a place like the Ivy League or a place like Stanford or Berkeley. Um, and so I think that preparation before the kid is, 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 is told, you know, you could go to college and then you just let them go to college, but you have not really prepared them maybe the summer before with a, uh, a summer, uh, you know, let's say junior year after high school, uh, spending time at a college campus simply in a program where they could just sort of acclimate and learn to acclimate because they'll be doing that the following year. I think all of that will will make a recipe for success for someone who's never been to college or has never had a, a family member go to college, and that will help them succeed once they get there. Does that make sense? Absolutely, because it's really recognizing that there are so many things aside from um you, you know, your ability academically, that it's the opportunities that your family have had, that it's the culture that people have come from, that it's, you know, this sense of, of belonging or not belonging. That's a huge part of it as well. And a real sense of fear when you're going into the unknown and particularly that first generation who maybe goes into the into third level education if, if they're not coming from a background where, you know, the other family members have had those opportunities. Yeah, and, and, and that certainly was true for me. And, and one of the things that happened, of course, is when I went to Harvard and I started learning, for example, how to invest money and how to apply for loans and how to get jobs, I would pass this information back to my siblings. I would pass this information back to my parents. I would help my parents uh, learn about, uh, you know, how to how to apply for loans. How, you know, so the information started flowing both ways. So when you send, you know, when my parents sent my my uh, sent me to co- to college, you know, they they also sent someone who was able to help them eventually with everything from their investments to, um, you know, to organizing themselves in a better way. Um, and and I also learned, you know, the values that I learned simply to survive. One of the things, for example, I'm I'm a father of two boys, and they're New York City kids. They grew up in New York. And, and one of the things I told my kids that, you know, I, I said, New York City kids, they're too soft. They don't understand what it is to work until you drop, to work every day, to work Saturdays and Sundays, works, work in the summer. And and this is this value, by the way, I think is lost. And I got this value from my Mexican parents in El Paso. You know, they worked us to the bone. And so I, of course, when my kids came home from school in New York City, uh, if they didn't have homework, I gave them homework. Every summer, they had to take an extra math class. Every summer, they had to take an extra language class. And not surprisingly, you know, my sons, uh, you know, scored, uh, one of them scored, I won't tell you, but they, one of them scored a 2400 as SAT, and the other one scored a 2300. And, and they went to Yale, and they went to University of Chicago. And it's not about, I don't think it's just about their intellect. It's about, they, I trained them to work hard to work until you're, you are just ready to drop. You have to do more than your peers if you want to go to these top-notch schools. And, and I think that's lost. Immig- an immigrant understands this, a recent immigrant understands it. And the, the problem I told my kids is that your parents, namely my wife and I, have been too successful, 
then you get soft. You think you're entitled to go to these places rather than you have to fight every every minute of every hour, every weekend, every summer. Instead of going to the mall, you work because you do more than your peers, and that's how you separate yourself. And I think this is this exact value is 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 something that my parents taught me and, and instilled in me. Uh, and I think this is why you know immigrants in many ways revive America. They're they're not invading America. They're making America better. Well, to that end, Sergio, I mean, what is it like for you then when you go back and you visit your parents, your own family home that you grew up in, in El Paso, having gone through everything that you've gone through and Harvard and Yale and now living in New York and and your kids now going to Ivy League schools as well. When you go back home to that house that you were brought up in, you know, what what are your feelings well, I mean, it's, it's it, you know, in, in some ways I, I have a mix of, I've already separated myself from Isleta and El Paso where I grew up, but I love those places. I go, I was just there one week ago and I, I, I return often, um, you know, because I, I, love, I love where I grew up and it taught me everything that I know. And uh, I also, you know, I, I had the great honor that the El Paso Public Library named the library branch um, in my neighborhood where I grew up, a beautiful library branch, uh, the Sergio Troncoso Branch Library. So it, it, it means a lot to me to be supported by the community where I came from, but I, it also is an obligation for me to go and help other kids like me who grew up poor along the border, who have that work ethic, who have the, the focus to, you know, to rise above and, and do better than, than, than where they started. And so for me, it's, it's, it's trying to help others that are coming, that are younger than me and that, that, that you know, are going to make a similar journey that I will. And, and so I love Isleta. It, it's a great place. And, and that's the thing that people often who are not from the border don't understand, how peaceful it is. You know, it's, it's, it's also bilingual. You learn two languages simply by, by being there and how good the people are, how they work together, because they really don't have a lot. They have to work together to, you know, to, to, to rise up. And, and my mother always, of course, tells me, uh, no te creas muy muy, which means in Spanish, uh, don't think of yourself as too much, too much, simply because you went to Harvard and Yale. So, you know, they keep me honest. They keep me level-headed. Um, but but I believe in, in, in El Paso and my community, and I want people to really look at it in a critical way, not in a stereotypical way. And that's been my mission, you know, as long as I've lived. Well, Sergio Troncoso's latest book is a collection of short stories, A Peculiar Kind of Immigrant's Son. Thank you so much, Sergio. Thank you, Maeve. I, 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 enjoy, I look forward to going to Denver in the tattered cover. That should be exciting. And you can catch Sergio Troncoso speaking at the Tattered Cover in Lodo in Denver this Saturday afternoon at two o'clock. His latest collection of short stories, A Peculiar Kind of Immigrant's Son. And we're so pleased to be able to bring you interviews with these type of authors that introduce us to books that we potentially would never read and as we heard there from Sergio Troncoso, it is so important that we read outside of our own personal experience to really get a full sense of the world 
um, maybe you've been introduced to, to a book or an author or a topic on KGNU on a show like Metro, maybe on our radio book club or one of our other news and public affairs programmes. And if that's challenged you and maybe inspired you and you've gone on to read a great book, we'd love to hear from you this afternoon. We are in our fall fund drive and we're relying on our community to really step up and support us to keep us strong. So we can continue to bring you these type of thoughtful conversations. The number to call is 303-449-4885. 303-449-4885-kgnu.org. Still lots more to come. We have economic update coming up at four, followed by Peace Talks Radio at 4.30. And after the latest news by the BBC at five, it's it's the economy. That's coming up at six o'clock and a special interview with the author of a new book taking a look at the opioid crisis. It's Fentanyl Inc. coming up at six. Next, though, it's time for TUC Radio. This program is supported by you, the KGNU listener member, and by Save Home Heat Company, providing professional service and installation of heating, cooling, plumbing, and electrical systems, proudly serving the Boulder, Denver area for over 35 years. More information at savehomeheat.com. TUC Radio, time of useful consciousness. From the archives, Helen Caldicott and Michael Madsen into Eternity. Into Eternity is a story never told before. This movie follows the building of Onkelo, the world's first permanent underground storage site for waste from nuclear power plants. Michael Madsen explores the task of building a site that will not be disturbed for 100,000 years. That's how long waste from nuclear power plants remains dangerous to life. No structure in human history has lasted one-tenth of that time. Nevertheless, blasting into bedrock goes forward in this 140-year-long project in Finland on the island of Alkiljoto on the shores of the Baltic Sea. As utterly insane it sounds that human beings are undertaking this project, unfathomable in time span and ambition, the scientists, regulators, and corporate executives that are overseeing Onkelo point out that every day, the world over, large amounts of high-level radioactive waste are created by nuclear power plants. That waste is kept in water pools or dry caskets vulnerable to natural and man-made disasters, as we so vividly saw at Fukushima. The fact that this dangerous material is just left out on the surface, stored near accident-prone nuclear power plants, is even more insane. The extraordinary impact of the film Into Eternity is that it explores time, language, and eternity, and the vast contradiction between humanity's scientific feat of mastering the power of the universe and our inability to understand the consequences and even to think about them. The British film critic Peter Bradshaw wrote in The Guardian, one of the most extraordinary factual films to be shown this year. Why isn't every government, every philosopher, every theologian, everybody, everywhere in the world discussing Onkelo and its implications? End quote by Peter Bradshaw. This is part two of a conversation between the physician Helen Caldicott 
and the filmmaker Michael Madsen. Michael, would you like to describe to the listeners 